what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. My name is Alan Jackson. I am the co-founder and co-director, current director, of the Foot Candle Film Society and our upcoming annual Foot Candle Film Festival. Uh, since there's a co in my title, that implies that there is yet another co-founder or co-director. And lo and behold, he's right here across the table from me. Chris Rye, how are you doing? I am doing well. Excited to uh, talk about movies. And as you mentioned, the upcoming film festival, excited that's uh Coming up in September 22nd through the 26th. It is. It's like a little more than two months away, which is kind of insane when more, when I actually put it in that frame. <laughs> That's but actually kind of scary. We've still got a lot to do. Yes. But I will say that we, we I think we've got, the films are getting locked down as yes. of the time of you hearing this recording. This is true. So we're getting really close to be able to, to announce them and start selling tickets for it. Mm-hmm. So it should be a pretty fun. We do encourage you to go visit Foot Candle Film Festival. To find out more about that, we'll maybe mention it again later in the show. But let's get to movies that we've already seen and we've already um, experienced with an audience. We have two of them to talk about. Although, unfortunately, both of these I did end up watching in my home. I don't know about you, Chris, if you watched both of them in a home environment. I was was in the same boat. Um, Unfortunately, these movies, which is – these are oftentimes the type of movies that Alan and I review. We do review, you know, Black Widow, which anybody can see because it's all over the place. Or some movies that are a little lesser known, kind of fly under the radar, or they only hit like bigger cities, um, which is kind of the case with these. So you can watch these, though. They are available online, which is how Alan and I watch them. It's a nice thing about the online viewing, but – but it, it, we neither, neither of these were available to us in the area where we live for True. theatrical viewing. But the two films we'll be discussing today and reviewing, first up will be the horror comedy Werewolves Within based on a video game. Did you know that, Mr. Fry? I did. Okay. We'll get to that in a little bit sure. with our review. But that's starring uh, Sam Richardson and Mil- Milana Yantrub. Uh, I just know her as the AT&T girl. That's all I know how to say. Wow. I think that just blew my mind. Yes. Okay. The AT&T girl. I kept thinking yeah. I reckon. Okay. Well, we'll talk about it in the review. <laughs> yeah, sure. Werewolves with Vin. That'll be the first uh, film we review here in a moment. And then we'll be following that up with a review of the documentary by Mr. Edgar Wright, the Sparks Brothers about the band Sparks. So that'll be our show on the front half. Then we'll go into our news and I've got a few news items to share with Mr. Fry here and get his thoughts and reactions to both some interesting films coming up soon, as well as some just uh, a little bit of film controversy we're going to get into as well. Um, we'll hold up on that for the, for the uh, new section. Then at the end of the episode, Chris and I both give a recommendation of a film that we think is worth checking out, something maybe we just caught up with or had a chance to see ourselves or just recall uh, and, and feel like is a good film to recommend that people ought to check out. So Chris, as always, we got a lot to do, a lot to cover. You ready to get started? Let's do it. All right. Let's move right into our first film review, which is the horror comedy Werewolves Within. Should affect our snowshoes. What? People do that? You know, fun fact, 
Not only is it the oldest, but remains one of the most effective means of traversing the ice. Wow. Yeah, you're gonna fit right in at Beaverfield. Everything here is a little questionable. Ranger! The people. The weather. Everything. Oh. Ranger? You look like you just seen a corpse. Well, the roads are amped, and something's wrong with the generator. Which generator? All of them. Think it on the internet! Uh, also, there's a dead body under your porch. Holy ah! Video games made into film. Not something that has a good track record, in my experience. Just this year, we had a remake of Mortal Kombat. And there's even an Assassin's Creed film with Michael Fassbender in our not-too-distant past. Um, both were completely dreadful, and I think, Alan, you've been wise enough to have avoided them both. I have. I kind of make it a, a general rule of thumb to avoid video game adaptations unless I hear from three people that they're <laughs> worth watching. Then in that case, I will go see them. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. So with Werewolves Within, we have an adaptation of an Ubisoft video game that centers on a creature that is menacing a small town and the attempts of the newly minted forest ranger trying to figure out what in the heck is going on. Alan, are you glad you caught up with this game adaptation or do you wish you'd kept your record of skipping game adaptations intact because you hadn't heard from three other people? Or will <laughs> you be one of those three people that will recommend it oh, to good, others? Good, good. Um, yeah, I'll recommend this one. Um, and, and honestly, I think it's because it, it doesn't, it's not really, a, it's not a video game movie. I mean, sure. it's a, it's a, it's a horror comedy. It is a werewolf movie. <laughs> Somebody is a werewolf. That is a mystery. Oh, you went and spoiled what the creature was, Alan. Well, Way to go. Sorry. Werewolves within. Nobody, no, <laughs> no spoiler. Yes, yeah, there's a werewolf. Right. So that's, that's basically it. So, I mean, sure. it, it's, you know. Yes. Okay. If you, I guess if you know the video game and maybe there are some things in the, in the film that might call to elements of the video game, but I, you didn't, I don't know anything about the video game is based off. doesn't matter. This no. is just a, uh, you have a new, a forest ranger moving to a small town, getting uh, kind of set up in a small town played by Sam Richardson, who I really like. I think he's I thought funny. he was amazing. I don't yeah. know him from anything else. Do you? Um, he was in the show Veep. Okay. Uh, with Julie Louis Dreyfus. Okay. And also, I know he's got some bit parts in the uh, Tim Robinson's Netflix, the I Think You Should Leave sketch comedy show. Okay. He does okay. a couple little bit parts in that. But I thought he was really, really, really yeah. good in this. Yeah. He's good. And uh, he plays the new forest ranger in town or park ranger and gets mixed in almost like within the first 24 hours into a uh, bad situation where people are dying and it turns out there is a werewolf loose. But yet, it turns out it is somebody becoming the werewolf. They sure. come to find out, and they have to figure out who. Uh, you gotta. I I like it. I mean, I don't love it, but I like it. I thought it was. <laughs> I thought it was good, entertaining, fun for an okay. hour and a half. Um, it didn't do anything revolutionary. It didn't do anything that like made me say, "Oh wow, that was really really cool." But what it did have is it had a really good cast. I will give the cast. Total props. Um, you know, it's it reminds me a little bit of the film Clue. Okay, oh, back in the eighties, yes, yes, where you had like really great actors up. kind of all coming together, and they all kind of played these big showy parts. And everybody's trapped in a, a house, and and somebody's the murderer, and you're trying to figure out who it is. Okay, 
same idea here. You've got some great comedic actors, some great characters all coming together in this. Basically, they end up like in a lodge or a, a kind of bed and breakfast type place. And it's the same idea. It's like, okay, we got to figure out who, who who's killing everybody. And all the, I think every actor that's involved in this is just having a blast and it's fun and they're good and it's fun to watch. So I will say that it, it didn't, I don't think it's, you know, it didn't do anything really new from what I've seen in similar films, but it did make me laugh. And I did think a lot of the characters were really fun. It's a pretty small film, which sure. I like about it. I it's mean, like 90 minutes, right? It's 90 right. minutes. Yeah. It's also fairly low budget. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's not, it doesn't go the special effects route hardly at all. It's mm-hmm. just, it's a pretty simple, simple film, really basing it on the, the, the comedic performances of these very interesting characters you get with a little shock violence and gore sure. thrown in for good mix. So that's where I am with it. I liked it. I recommend it. Chris, what about you? What's your yeah, thoughts on it's this? It's interesting. I have in my notes here that um, it felt to me like a mashup between Clue, which is a mm. successful board game so yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> turned into a movie, um, but then um, also Wolf of Snow Hollow, which we yeah. reviewed here on the show. So it's kind Absolutely. of a mashup of those two because it was a mystery like Clue, but then it's kind of the horror aspect, which Snow Hollow, which interestingly it's actually enough, very, very similar to Wolf of Snow Hollow. And uh, which interest, that, interestingly right enough, yeah, Wolf of right? Snow Hollow. Okay. Yep. And interestingly enough. Hollow was made by the same production company as this movie, which was Vanishing Angle. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. So where, that, so where Wolf of Snow Hollow had, it was it had some comedic moments, but it, it had was a lot heavy, more drama. Yeah, a lot more drama. Absolutely. Where this has very little if no drama, right. and um, but I mean the premise, and, and I guess that's why. Like when I heard this was a video game movie, it's like, well, I don't, I don't get it because <laughs> I just saw a movie six months ago that was almost identical, same format and premise, and. You know, so I don't really, I don't really get the video game element of it, but whatever. Again, looking at the film for its own merits was fun, but yeah, go ahead. Well, and something that, um, to me, as far as, you know, yeah, I went in with really low expectations because I hadn't heard anything about it. Didn't know any of the cast and I come away. I I really liked it. And something that kind of took me by surprise and it was in the opening credits um, Mm -hmm. and actually it kind of made the film unique and it comes back around in the most amazing way. And it makes it, there's kind of like a a moral or a little bit of a theme. And it starts off, yes, this horror comedy starts off with a quote from Mr. Rogers. Mm -hmm. And it's listening, and they like slowly fade it up in different parts too to make it even creepier. It's like, listening is where love begins, listening to ourselves. And then it comes up, and then our neighbors. So it makes it like really menacing. And you're like, okay. (laughs) And then it says, Mr. Rogers. And you're like, okay. (laughs) Well, the way it comes back around. And in the end, it's like, wow. So it's kind of making commentary about, you know, towns today, society today, people helping or not helping each other out or being self interested. And and I'll tell you, that was stuff there. That's one thing that you kind of, Got to something on my notes I was going to bring up as I think a kind of a really nice positive about this film. Um, it were a lot of caricatures of different types of people. Yes. And all of them were made to look pretty ridiculous, which I think was great. It's kind of the South Park approach where they yeah. just lambaste everybody. They yeah, don't. Because, yeah. yeah. I mean, yes, we are introduced pretty early on to a couple that, you know, we see the signs putting up in their yard. We see their political leanings pretty quickly. And then you think, okay, maybe the film is going to try to like slam on that group. And then you come up with a, a couple that are on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, which hilarious couple yeah. played by um, 
I'll get the names here in a minute. Cheyenne, Cheyenne Jackson, Jackson mm-hmm. and then uh, Harvey Gillian, which have you ever seen the What We Do in the Shadows TV show? No, I he's haven't. In that. But he's I bet he's, he's really amazing. good. I bet and he is. <laughs> he's the two of them are hilarious. Okay, but they play the complete opposite end of the political and social social uh, uh, status. Uh, you know, economic status, everything, mm-hmm. and they're also played ridiculous. Like yeah. they're annoying as well, and it's just. <laughs> So the film is very clear. It's like we're going to make fun of everybody. Like right. every group that we identify in this in this community is going to come out looking pretty bad. <laughs> and um, that's what I think really works for it and made it a lot of fun too. So uh, I didn't play favorites, which was nice. Well, you mentioned, um, which blew my mind kind of in the intro of the show. So the two leads are basically Sam Richardson playing Finn Wheeler, the you know the forest ranger, park ranger, and then there's Melania Vantrub playing Cecily Moore, the, which you said it was the AT and T yeah, girl. She's the post office postmaster or post, post postman there in town. Yeah. She is the AT and T girl. I, if you I, see I, any whole, of the AT and T commercials, yeah. that is her. And the whole time I was like, man, she looks really yeah. familiar, but I can't place like what I've seen her in and. There, there yeah. you go. She's really good. She is I've never really seen good. her like in a movie or anything, but mm-hmm. she's got some great comedic timing and, and with, line yeah, delivery. With Sam and, Richardson, yeah. it's just great chemistry and timing there. It's awesome. Yeah, so they were a lot of fun. Um, uh, Michael Sherness mm. uh, played the husband of one of – well, plays a, a spouse of one of the characters. Uh, the one play, played by, shoot, uh, Michaela Watkins. It's her husband. Right. And uh, he's always a lot of fun. I like him in a lot of stuff. He was, the him. first time I'd seen him, Michael Chernus was in Orange is the New Black. Yes, so, that's yeah, it. Right. right. So again, just a nice mixture of just some really interesting people um, coming together and just having a fun time making a, a fun movie that, that for the most part, I think works. I mean, do all the jokes land, do all the – not as much for me. But I still think overall it was just a, a great fun time. Sure. And I had a good time with it. Um. It kept me guessing, not that I'm like looking at this, trying to like find a really complex mystery to solve. No, I mean, it's intentionally weaved you between several different sure. candidates, which made it fun to kind of follow along. And mm-hmm. I think ultimately where it ended up, I thought might have been one of the avenues early in the film, but I kind of discounted it. But then but by the end, I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. So that's 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 the direction they're taking. And it all worked. It right. all kind of made sense at the end. It worked. So I was fine with that. And I think if I'd gone in, all I knew about this was it was a horror comedy. I didn't know there was like the mystery aspect. And I'm glad I didn't because I think if I'd gone into it with the expectations of something yeah. like Knives Out, where you're like, okay, that's the deal here. And you would have been spending the whole movie trying to figure it out. With here, I think if you try to do that, it might not work for you because you're like, oh, I, it's clear who it is the whole time. Mm-hmm. But if you just don't worry about that and just try to enjoy like the funniness of it, like take it as a comedy, then the whodunit nature, like it's still there, but you won't be able to figure it out because you're not trying to, because I think if you try, you'll figure it out and that might yeah. ruin it for you. But to me, it was like, just sit back and relax and try to have as much fun as the cast seems to be having <laughs> and, and you'll enjoy it. Well, I, I'll, I'll harken back to another film. I mean, there are a lot of similarities to the Wolf of Snow Hollow we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other film that kind of came to mind for me was the film that we reviewed maybe a year, year and a half ago, Extraordinary. Oh, yeah. The uh, kind of supernatural ghost hunting comedy. Sure. That was also comedy horror. It was mm-hmm. – very very similar in tone yeah and it also did not feature a very well-known act uh, a cast other than i think will we forte had, will forte was the only one in that film that kind of you knew right but it's, it didn't matter it's just everybody was just it was really fun it, it was. was it was smart 
but it played with that genre as well, that whole mm-hmm. horror um, uh, genre, just like this does too. So uh, I think Extraordinary was, uh, to me, funnier. Mm-hmm. But this was, I think, a nicer film. It was just like a more <laughs> gentle, more more easygoing film to watch, even though it was a horror film with certain sure. kind of bloody moments in it. But uh, I still had a really good time with it. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, nice surprise. Okay. Um, you know, I, I feel like this is one that could have gone in any direction when we found out about it. It's not getting tons of buzz right now, uh, but it is available online for rental or, uh, you know, or watching online in general, Apple, Amazon, all those typical places. You can go and check it out and see it. So, um, is there anything else, Chris, you had on it? No, no, I, I, I do. I do recommend it. I think it's something, if it sounds like from our review that you'd be interested in, I definitely recommend it and check it out because yeah, I guess it's one of those movies that I think may have come to theaters if the pandemic had, but like now that the floodgates open there, it's just, I feel like a lot of smaller films are going to start being washed over again because yeah. all the attention goes to other films. So yeah. yeah, great. All right. So that's werewolves within didn't even mention, you know, the director, Josh Rubin, um, he did another film that I'm kind of curious to see now too, called scare me, which is oh. also available online, Okay, which is kind of a horror comedy from what I understand. Okay. Um, it's available. And then, uh, I think that may be all he's done on the film side, but he's also an actor as well. He's also been involved uh, acting in several things <laughs> over the years. So, um, interesting one to check out the Josh Rubin, but uh, actor, writer, director, this appears to be his second feature film. I could be off on the history there, but okay. I think, uh, think it was fun. So yeah. worth, uh, worth watching to see what he does next. Absolutely. All right. So great. Chris, let's go ahead and flip over to our second review, which is the uh, director Edgar Wright's love letter documentary to his band Sparks called The Sparks Brothers. Throughout all the years that I've been making music, if you get on a tour bus with a bunch of musicians, eventually the conversation will go to Sparks. I remember just seeing them all the time, like, who are those guys? They are a band who you can look up on Wikipedia and know nothing. We are Sparks, dude. Please welcome Sparks. Sparks. Frequently asked questions about Sparks. How many albums are there? 25 albums. Are you brothers? We are brothers. How did you first meet? We are brothers. Music at its best. You hear it and you go, oh my God, what is that? It's insane, but it's fantastic. Each time you'd go to the rehearsal, there'd be something new there. Like, that's good. It wasn't like anything else. Chris, in the documentary, The Sparks Brothers, were introduced to the brothers, Ron and Russell. Their last names are not Sparks. Their last name is Male, but they are known as Sparks as a band. Um, supposedly a lot of people early in the film we learned would refer to them as the Sparks brothers. And they hated that because their name's not Sparks, <laughs> even though they are brothers, right. but they still hate that, that, that nomenclature. So it is kind of a, already you're getting the tone of the documentary kind of, uh, poke them in the ribs a little bit and say, yeah, we're going to call this documentary, the Sparks brothers, because <laughs> that's technically inaccurate, but it's still fun to say. Um, we look at to know them, uh, their style of pop music over, you know, 25 studio albums they've recorded, but I don't know about you, Chris, before this documentary, or at least hearing about the making of this documentary when it was in production sure. before that, I couldn't have told you much, anything about sparks. 
Um, it turns out I have heard a couple of their songs before, like watching the documentary. I'm like, oh, I know that song or I know that album cover, but I never put the two and two together. So sometimes when people make music documentaries, their goal is to try to uh, inform you about a band and inform you about a, a performer, get you to know them better, get right. you to know them intimately so you have a better appreciation for them. Sometimes the documentaries are just gushing love letters. Just let me just show you everything we love about this band. And then you can decide if you actually got any insight in, in, into it or not. Edgar Wright is obviously a fan. Uh, Edgar Wright, he of you know, Baby Driver, Shaun of the Dead, the upcoming Last Night in Soho. I believe this is his first documentary, or at least so. as it appears yeah. to be. Uh, does appear to be having fun with making this documentary, and it's very clear that he loves this band immensely. Mm-hmm. But how about you, Chris? Did you love this documentary? Did you love Sparks? Or did it miss the mark in trying to do what you think Mr. Wright was trying to do here? Well, you know, I think from what I remember, because I think we had this as a news item on the show, like way back in, because like, hey, did you hear he's making a documentary? We're like, what? Um, he was at a concert of theirs. And, you know, I guess there were other famous, because as you see in this documentary, there are tons of famous people who are aware of this band. I am A, not famous, and B, I was not aware of this band. Yeah. But at the concert or afterwards, he was talking to somebody and they're like, he's like, oh man, I can't believe more people don't know about this band. Somebody should make a documentary. And the person told Edgar, like, you should make that documentary. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay. So he did. So yeah, obviously he's a fan. Um, but what was really surprising to me, and it didn't bother me, it's surprising that it didn't bother me. A lot of times you and I talk about um, when a documentary or often it's a feature film, a narrative feature film, they try to take on too much and they literally mm. tell you, okay, this is my childhood. And they run you all the way up until maybe the person passes away. The or typical something. musical biopic is we're going to span the entire life of this person in an hour and a half to two hours. And yeah. it's, it's, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. So when you figure the Sparks brothers who have five decades worth of a story they start out this documentary and they start out like their childhood and their mo- who their mother was and who their father was and that they got to go see the Beatles twice. One time their mom drove them all the way to Las Vegas because they lived in California. And, you, and you're just like, okay, but – and I'm just like, huh, that's interesting that they're starting back this early. And then they start with – they mention they have, as you did, they have 25 studio albums. And then they, they mention the first one and then they proceed to mention the <laughs> second one mm-hmm. and the third one and the fourth one. And the fifth one. And I didn't sit there and every time they do an album be like, okay, they're on album 23. So I guess they have only two more. This is a two hour and 20 minute documentary, which usually you hear me complaining about time. It does take on their entire career so much so that the next project they were involved with that I know about is the movie Annette, which just premiered at Cannes. They did the music for it and came up with the story idea for it. That was like shown kind of towards the end of this yep. film. So mm-hmm. it literally like you feel like they could have had cameras running on them at Cannes almost like how did this documentary. It was just very encompassing. But all that said, even with the time, two hours and 20 minutes, even with all that information, I I liked it and I wasn't bored. I wasn't tired of it. What's interesting to me is I can't say 
I find some of their music interesting, but I really, and I remember when this was announced, I was like, I'm going to listen to some Sparks. And I was like, no, I'm going to go into this completely mm-hmm. cold. Okay. I'm not going to know anything about their music because I hadn't heard of them. I think some of their stuff sounds familiar, but overall, I definitely didn't recognize their song title. It's definitely, yeah. it's more, it's a kind of music style for me. It's more, a lot of times it varies into like dance music or electronic music, mm-hmm. especially later in their career. Yeah. And I don't care for that. It's just in general, that kind of music as much. But that to me speaks to how much I do like this documentary that I was still interested in watching it. And Mm -hmm. I think the thing that I can key back on, and I'll let you say how you felt about it. Mm -hmm. So it's not just me rambling about it. um, Was that the thing that stuck out was, yes, these guys, they're brothers. They've been making music for 50 years. And the thing is, they do it regardless, mm-hmm. regardless of how much fame they have, regardless yeah. of if they're getting critical acclaim or, you know, fame, critical acclaim, whatever. They just keep doing it. They do it because they really, really love making music. Yeah. And they don't care whether people get it or don't get it. That's that's not important to them. Sure. And I just, I, I really admire that. So what was your experience with the film? So a film like this, Chris, I kind of feel like, it's tough to review because there's half of me that wants to review it in terms of what I thought of Sparks, the mm, band, sure. the music, me being introduced to them. What do I like about their performances? What do I like about them? What All that. And that's not really – I mean, I, the director of the, of the documentary has a little bit of responsibility to share that. Sure. But I can also have my own opinions about the documentary itself, the have way the it was sure. all made and promoted and done. Sure. So I'm a little of two minds of things. Sure. I got you. Um, to answer the first side of it, I'll just say that uh, Sparks has been playing in my car <laughs> for the last three days straight. Okay. Okay. If that tells you right away that, yes, I got into this. I um, I like what I heard. I like okay. what I saw. I, it, it is disappointing to me personally that I did not know much about this band. It is like a little bit of a badge of shame to say, oh, you know, I consider myself someone who tries to stay up on music and likes a lot of different types of music. And the fact that I couldn't have told you anything about Sparks is kind of personally disappointing to me. I really liked them. Mm-hmm. I liked their music. I liked their performances. I liked their style. Their I liked creativity. Creativity yeah. and all of that. Yeah. So so good. Sure. I hear, I feel a butt coming well, up. Well, <laughs> the, the butt side of it is the documentary itself, mm-hmm. the film itself. Yes, it is all encompassing. Yeah. And you're right. It, I did not mind that. I'm like, yeah, I kind of actually did want to see all 25 albums. I wanted to see their progression as artists over these years. But I walk away realizing, and I know this is probably by design. I get it. There's probably the artist don't want to share anything beyond what was shared in the film. Mm -hmm. But I I don't feel like I I got to know anything about Sparks. Gotcha. The the people. Right. Uh, There's a moment late in the film which is a little more modern day, like a little more like current. Mm-hmm. And you see kind of their routine where yes. they're going into their little studio and they're working together and they're getting coffee together. I'm like, yes, that's <laughs> what I want to Like, I guess I walked away saying, okay, so why, 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 why did they get into music? Why do they do this? Why did they do that? And again, they probably didn't want to share that. And I get it. There's no mention of family outside of like what happens to their mother and father like early on. Right. There's no mention of you don't know if they're married, you don't know if they have kids. That doesn't matter. And I don't nope. care about that. I I I was curious about the music and sure. I did want to learn a little bit more about why. And there are a couple of moments where the film does 
start to give you a little taste of maybe some drama. Mm-hmm. And then it pulls back so quick. Kind it's of like, with uh, Jane Whelan and like. There's the Jane the Whelan uh, from brother. the Go-Go's and yeah. her kind of having some maybe possible relationship with one or the other brother and all. Right. Then there's a moment where one of their former drummers gets a little emotional about the fact that she felt like they just worked so hard and never got the appreciation. Yes. And you're like, Oh, is this going to go down the typical musical biopic where now this, the dark period where they're all down and upset. No, they were fine. They just kept going. And uh, so it's like moments like that. Actually, there's even a moment where they talk about a song that Ron had written where he's kind of insinuating that, you know, Russell's the good looking one and Ron is kind of the, he wishes he was maybe better looking. He yes. wishes. And those little moments are very brief and very quick. And it's not that I wanted the film to go into any roller coaster drama of a band. I like the fact that these guys had very little drama in their career, which seemed to be fine by them. Mm-hmm. But I guess I just, I didn't, I felt like the director's responsibility was to give us a little more insight the best he could. And if the Sparks were truly saying, no, we don't want to go there. We just we just want you to document our albums and our career path, and that's it. Then fine. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, it was a long documentary. Sure. My, my biggest reservation with it is I just felt like the film dove a little bit towards the end into just a big gush love fest mm. with a lot of other artists. Like the whole ending, it seemed like it went like 15 minutes of just constantly reiterating how much people love Sparks. And I get it. If the the <laughs> film worked, after an hour and a half, I'm in. I love this band. I'm ready to go. I don't need Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers telling me three or four times sure. how much he loves Sparks. I get it. I love them too. Thanks to this documentary and the film I'm watching, I don't need all this extra footage of people telling me why I should love them now. So that's I never like it when documentaries go into a, a love fest um, of the subject matter. Edgar Wright's very clear here. He he is a participant in this documentary. You hear him back behind the camera, kind of commenting on what people are saying, or sometimes laughing, Some, or something, and yeah. he's put himself in the in the interviews as well as commenting. I think in his subtitles, like fanboy, or yeah, something. yeah, exactly. Right. And it's very clear he he's not hiding the fact that he loves this band and he just wants it to be a love letter to them. I just I didn't need it to be a love letter. I think you just tell me and show me these guys and show me everything they're doing, and I'm automatically a fan. So you mission accomplished. You know? <laughs> so again, I'm of two minds. I did like it. I enjoyed it. I think anybody who wants to learn about this band, yes, absolutely. You'll be amazed, I think, if I like I was, how much you get into the music after a while and, and, and them as characters. Sure. Um, I did walk away wondering – no, why did they do it? Why, why, what drives them? What, what was more of their inspirations for, for being this? And I, I would have liked to have known that, but somebody was not interested in telling me that, whether it was Edgar or Sparks or whoever. That's fine. But I, I did like this. I did like this a lot. I had a good time with it. So, you know, I only have one negative and it basically encompasses what you kind of talked about. Um, you know, I, maybe there was too much because, you know, I often harp on runtime. I'm not going to harp on it here because it didn't bother me. But I will say maybe there was too much of a reliance on some people that were only identified as fans. And I didn't recognize who they were. So I'm like, I don't, you're just talking about how great they are, but I don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you just walked into a concert after it was over and just have these random people say, how, like, it's not giving me enough context. All it is is running is adding running time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I would say 
afterwards, I kind of like, even though I do know about their albums, I know like technical facts, but sure. I don't know any emotional truth yeah. or anything. And I think, yeah, it's safe to say they've been around for 50 years. They're not interested in providing any. Sure. <laughs> like, and I get, I get that. And, I, and they said, you know, so they're, it's like, yeah, and you get that. And so it's, it's interesting, um, but it's crazy to me. And I think it's because they've never been able to break through on like a large, like Radiohead level or something like that, that they've been able to maintain not a whole lot being known about them. Yeah. And I bet in a way they're kind of like, you know what? We're kind of cool with the level of fame we have. We're glad we have fame. We're glad we get to do what we do. But I think they like not having a lot known about them. So it I, seems I, that wonder, way. I wonder when they talk with Ed, Edgar Wright about doing this, if they're like, cool, but we want to do more of like our chronology and our music stuff, but we don't yeah. want to talk about anything well, other than like our parents. But other than see, that. But that's also no. a question <laughs> that I wouldn't mind having answered by the film. Do they care about fame and success? Because hmm. there's a couple moments in the film where oh, you kind of they... get the impression it's like, yeah, they were actually, they changed gears because this one album did not perform or didn't get connected. So they changed a little bit. I kind of just wanted to know, okay, well, so that there was some importance. Do they feel resentful that they haven't gotten all this attention for years or do they really not care? Well, that's why I don't really, I and, wish I knew a little more. Of, and the one you know. thing that they, they're again, they never, they just kind of touch on these things, but that's why towards the end of the film, when they announce Annette and that a film is actually going to be made mm. based on their story and idea and everything, I felt like it was hooray. Yeah. They finally made it because they have two different times. That will be the third. They have a film with Jacques Tati, this famous French director. And they were going to do something with him. Totally went down in flames. Then a Tim Burton movie yeah, that I had never even heard no of. Idea. And it sounded kind of really fascinating. It sounded right in Tim Burton's wheels house. And he just walked away from it. And they were like, dude. And so then Annette comes up, which I, you know, and it finally worked for him. So that was kind of a nice story arc thread yeah. that was also in there. So. No, I, I thought that was great. I thought that was, that was really great. So again, I do like this documentary. Sure. And I really like the band sparks. Uh, do I wish the documentary did a little more? It, maybe it could have shaved. I mean, I agree. The dance period time, like in the late eighties mm -hmm. seemed to take up a much larger part of the film than, than, you know, I'm like you, I'm not the biggest, that's sure. not my favorite phase of their music, right? but it seemed like it took up the largest part of the the film for me, you know, could have been a little less fanboy gushing by other artists and a little more just, you know, just a little bit of that insight, just like we saw when towards the end, when they went to their studios and are working side by side in their little uh, studio spot. I'm like, that's what I want to, I want to understand like, <laughs> what is life like for them? Like, what, right. are the, what are they thinking when they're making this music without going too far behind the curtains? So it's a balancing act. Sure. I get it. Um, I will say this with Edgar Wright. I mean, the documentary was fun. Mm -hmm. It was a very fun documentary. It used a lot of interesting claymation and animation. I, I love the fact that, you know, the people he was interviewing, they, they'd had the whole straight onto the camera mm -hmm. and they'd break sometimes. Sometimes they'd say something that's just really off the wall and, <laughs> or, or you hear Edgar Wright commenting on what they're saying behind the camera. I'm like, I like that. It's very, it tries to look like a very polished documentary, but really it's a little loose and fun. And I think that was, that played to the spirit of the band pretty well too. So, sure. Yeah. Did you stay through the credits? Yes. Or at least part of the credits and see. Yeah. Which yeah. interesting thing about that is, I guess it's just, it, it kind of, it's a, basically it's a perfect nutshell of the band. Yeah. They start this film off saying like, you, I guess 
they have questions come up on the screen like, mm -hmm. are you brother? And they say, yes, we are. And they do this like, they're kind of like just laying out some facts and they're doing it seemingly kind of resentfully, which yeah. kind of, you know, the whole secrets about them. Then the credit thing you're mentioning, they kind of relay like, here are some things about us that we've, you know, haven't been told or whatever. <laughs> and they kind of go, I don't know about you, but at the beginning I was like, oh, wow. Like, and then I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, as, as it continues going, I'm assuming it was absolute like, Balderdash. I'm pretty sure they're all false. Right. But, but the fact that you actually did kind of question for a moment. Yeah. Like when they, I mean, okay, this might be a slight little spoiler, but I don't think you can spoil like a documentary like this. No. When one of the questions they address at the end after in the mid credits is, oh, by the way, he's really Ron and I'm Russell. <laughs> and when that happened, I'm just like, oh my gosh. What? Is that true? Because it's like, I really had to like think, I'm like, okay, have we been, they've been intentionally calling each other the wrong, the, the opposite person this whole film. Right. And if so, that's awesome. But, right. but uh, I think it was also or not true. So. Adding, adding either like a further layer, what if the whole time they've been interviewed, they've just been wearing the mask of their brother or whatever. So like they've been answering for them and saying oh, like, right. like, like that, that would have been like, fun. And they, like that would have been amazing yeah. that had been the case it was a fun quirky documentary yeah. and it's, it was a good music documentary but like you said it was definitely more a discography sure and a fan reaction to their work than it was getting to know uh, the male brothers and you you got some history at the beginning and sure. in those first 20 minutes i'm like wow we are gonna get deep with them but i think once they got past that obligatory where they grew up, mm -hmm. pictures of them as children. It's like, now we don't really want to tell you anything more about them. <laughs> now we're done. <laughs> it's like, just know that they started making music right. and that's it. And that's fine. Yeah. Uh, I would have liked a little more. Um, swap out some of the the gushing for some real insight, but sure, that did not seem to be in the cards for this. And that's fine. But again, <laughs> I've been listening to Sparks for 72 hours straight now. So I'm a fan. <laughs> Love it. And uh, it's great. Um, anything more? Yeah, Chris, yeah, and that I'm good. I think we're good there. So Sparks, when we watched it, it was still a pretty expensive rental because they are showing it in theaters. So online rental was like twenty bucks still to rent it for a three day period, but it will be going to a more uh, cost effective, you know, rental price uh, here probably in the next few weeks, I would imagine. Uh, but we're both saying, yeah, check it out. Definitely, if you like music documentaries, this is a good one. It's a yeah. fun one. It's a great one to watch. Uh, if you don't know the Sparks. Uh, brothers, I keep saying the Sparks brothers, but if you don't know Sparks, Sparks. Yeah. and you are interested in opening your mind up to some new music or music you haven't been familiar with, this is a great way to do it. Um, if you're looking for a lot of deep insight as to the creative process and what drives these guys, yeah, you're not going to get a lot of that, but um, it's <laughs> no. still going to be a fun film regardless. So, All right, Chris. Well, that is our film reviews for today. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break. And when we come back, we've got some news items to cover. Uh, some award news items. We've got some box office discussion to have. And uh, then we'll close out with our recommendations of the episode. So stay tuned. You're listening to Foot Candle Films here on the Mesh.tv. And we will be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Jackson Creative, a custom communication agency located in downtown Hickory, North Carolina, specializing in online content creation. To learn more, visit thejacksoncreative.com. Jackson Creative, we tell your story. Hello and welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. Alan Jackson, Chris Fry, back with you again. We had our reviews at the top of the show of both Werewolves Within 
and the Sparks Brothers documentary, both of which we are giving uh, recommendations to. We like both of them. A yes. couple of misgivings here and there, but you know, overall, we had a good time with both those films. Definitely ones we think are worth checking out. But Chris, let's talk about some upcoming films or things we're going to be keeping our eye on. Normally, especially, you know, you and I, we, when we do our film festival, when we do film screenings, we're typically getting films that are maybe you would kind of consider a little more independent. Sure. Because obviously the bigger, the bigger box office movies are going to the big theater chains. Right. So in that kind of spirit, you know, we kind of keep our eye a little bit on some of the big film festivals and see what's happening there. What films are making waves, I guess you could say. And you don't really get too much bigger than the Cannes Film Festival. And that one did just wrap up. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked a little bit about Cannes and some of the films they were going to be showing, I think, a few episodes ago. But as of the time of this recording, they have announced winners, and we can now share those with everyone. Again, the Cannes Film Festival, uh, their biggest film award they get give out is called the Palme d'Or. And interestingly enough, it was given to the film Titan, which – you shared as a trailer mm-hmm. in the this could be no trailer topic section yeah. of our show. Right. It's from the director of Raw, uh, Julia DeCornor, De, DeCornor. And um, we didn't really know a lot about the film. The trailer doesn't give you a whole lot. But right. obviously people who saw it in Cannes and the <laughs> judges seem to really like it yes. because it did win the biggest you know, Palme d'Or prize at Cannes Film Festival. Um, harking back to our review we just did of spark the sparks brothers you mentioned the film annette that Mm -hmm. they wrote and did the score for well that film not only got um the director leo crox got him a best director award for annette but also they got an award for the uh, best uh, soundtrack to a film for their music that was uh contributed to the film so it's kind of nice to see. That is good. To was see. there anything else on the Cannes film front that you thought was uh, of interest or I just, need to be watching you, out for? I mean, I, just the other film, the big films that were there, you know, French Dispatch, um, a movie starring Matt Damon that Tom McCarthy um, directed, Stillwater. So those are two other films that I'm assuming will come. I mean, I know they'll come stateside, but they'll probably be big. Interestingly enough, um, I did not see. I wonder if it's because of the pandemic weight, <laughs> but mm-hmm. French Dispatch. I didn't see anybody saying it was horrible, but I didn't hear like a lot of gushing about it. Yeah. So that's actually kind of good for me because my expectations have been up really high for it. So um, it may be uh, a lesser Anderson film. We'll have to see. Well, it's it's kind of good to go in with some some lesser expectations. So sure. I think that's good to hear. Yeah. I didn't hear a lot of raving about the film, but I also didn't hear anybody saying it was you know, bad sure. or horrible either. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, so that's the Cannes film festival. It did finish up. And again, it's a nice bellwether of looking at films that we can expect to have access to or see in the next uh, several months. But also another film festival that is getting ready to start is the Venice film festival. Another fairly big one that gets a lot of attention. The one I wanted to bring up this, Chris, is uh, the latest film by Pedro Almodovar. Okay. Is going to be premiering, opening the Venice Film Festival in September. Okay. So competition for our film festival, but that's okay. You know, we'll, <laughs> I think the two can both coexist. Yeah, I think so. Um, Almodovar's newest film, which is, will not be premiering at our festival, but will be at the Venice Film Festival. They, they snatched it away from us. They did. Uh, <laughs> September 1 is really the date for that. And uh, I'm interested in the film. You and I reviewed his last film, Pain and Glory. Yes. And we both liked it. Mm -hmm. I liked it quite a bit. I'm 
trying to remember how positive you were no, on I, it. I liked it. I, I, I thought it was great. Um, this film is called Parallel Mothers. Okay. It will once again feature uh, Penelope Cruz. Okay. In that. But the film is uh, centers on three mothers and expands on Almodovar's previous depictions of womanhood by turning his focus on imperfect mothers <laughs> in a departure from some of his prior work where the mothers and the motherhood are kind of held on a very high pedestal. Sure. Here he's digging into ones that maybe aren't the best mother depictions, hmm. but what seems like it's also three mothers or three women who are going through different stages of pregnancy at a similar time too. So kind okay. of following these three different mothers, gotcha. uh, Penelope Cruz will be, I believe one of the three mothers that we're following. Uh, and then we also have, uh, uh, Etiana Sanchez Guijon, not familiar with her work or, uh, a newcomer, Melania Smith. Hmm. So okay. that will be the film that is uh, coming out from Amadova. I'm curious, yeah, anxious sure. to see how that plays out. Um, his and it will films, be opening in the his film films, festival. even if um, they don't maybe strike you as being particularly interesting from a narrative perspective, they're always well acted and the visuals in his films are always really striking. Yeah. So there's usually something to grab on to in a Almodovar film. So there are a few other films that are going to be showing at Venice. Okay. Um, a little film you and I have maybe heard a little bit about Dune ah. uh, will be showing at the Venice Film Festival. I think we all have a chance to see it. November, December, somewhere okay. in that time frame, but it will be playing at Venice in September. Uh, uh, some kind of odd transition here, going from that, uh, going from Almodovar and Dune to David Gordon Green's Halloween Kills, the next Halloween movie. Really? will be playing at the Venice Film Festival. Yes. And uh, don't get me wrong. I love David Gordon Green. We, you know, we reviewed Halloween, his like kind of reboot or whatever of that franchise. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does making a sequel to it. But that does strike me as odd. Well, one reason why it may be playing the festival is uh, 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 Jamie Lee Curtis is going to be honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the uh, okay. festival. So it may All be right. more of a matter that, of let's show her latest film That makes well. sense. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, couple others I thought sounded interesting. Um, Jane Campion has a new movie coming out wow. called The Power of the Dog, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons. Okay. Our guy, Jesse Plemons, yeah. that we like a lot. Hmm. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. And um, and then also Pablo Lorraine's drama, Spencer, starring uh, Kristen. Uh, oh, man. The, see, the reason I'm drawing a blank is the Variety <laughs> article actually has her name wrong. It says Kristen Spencer. She's not Kristen Spencer. No, it's the she's, Twilight Lady. Yes, and she's I feel Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart. Wow. See, right here. It says Kristen Spencer as Lady Diana. No, 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 no. Sorry. (laughs) Wow. Um, So anyway, that's why I drew a blank on her name. Sure. But Kristen Stewart playing Lady Diana. And I've seen like pictures and stuff and it looks, she looks amazing as Princess Diana. So Pablo Lorraine's film Spencer will be showing at the Venice Film Festival as well. So some interesting ones between that can, I mean, we're, we're kind of gearing back up to have our, 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 our highly regarded directors and their latest films and some new up and coming directors mm-hmm. getting their film seen right now. So that's, uh, it's exciting. Bon Joon Ho will be presiding over the main jury for the Venice film festival. And like I said, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and actually Roberto Benini will be both given lifetime achievement awards at the festival. So yeah. Roberto Benini. I know that's crazy. <laughs> 
So Chris, let's, let's turn our attention now to the other side of the movie making spectrum. We talked about independent films and we talked about director, auteur work and critically acclaimed work. Now let's move to money box office. Let's talk about what's happening there. Show me the money. Show me the money. You and I talked about Black Widow as a review last episode, which yes. we both liked the film. Mm-hmm. So since that time, it has been officially released, obviously, had its big opening weekend, made about $80 million over the weekend in the theaters, which for a Marvel movie is not great, but it's pretty good considering we've been a year and a half into a pandemic and this is the first big movie. It set records for movie box office since the pandemic started. Gotcha. Uh, but then the interesting note about all that is you had in or Disney announced that they got another $60 million in people who bought the movie online through Disney plus. So 80 plus 60, 140, that starts to look a lot better. And then, (laughs) you know, keeping in mind that they keep a lot more of the money from the Disney plus than what they do at the theaters because they have to split the money with theaters. Sure. Uh, Overall, it sounded pretty good. Then came the second weekend. (laughs) When Black Widow was beat by Space Jam 2 and had almost a 67% drop in box office revenue from the first weekend to the second weekend. When that happened, uh, the National Association of Theater Owners, NATO, by the way. Oh, nice. That's nice, yep. (laughs) uh, Came out with a statement basically saying that the reason for the huge drop off and the now what is considered poor performance of Black Widow is solely due to Disney's decision to put it out online uh, on Disney plus. They feel like that that watered down uh, the theater going experience for people and also made it harder or less reliable for people to spend money on the film. I see their point a little bit because think about this. If somebody is really anxious to watch black widow and they want to watch it at home, chances of them doing it in the first weekend, super high, mm-hmm. like, they're going to watch it the first weekend. Sure. How many people are going to plunk down 20 bucks to watch the film in the second or third weekend? Probably not as many. Sure. Disney has not announced what their Disney plus movie uh, revenue was for the second weekend. <laughs> probably because it's pretty small. Sure. So they may have a little bit of a point, you know, right now, based on that second weekend, black widow is kind of calling it being called now a little bit of a disappointment box office wise. Hmm. So, Chris, with that uh, information, I mean, what was your ta- what's your take on or what thoughts on the whole theater versus online viewing? I mean, do you feel like this tells any story for us at all, or is this change what's going to be happening in the coming months? Well, you know? I mean, it, I think if it had continued, like if the second week had been strong for Disney as far as like they're not, not through theaters, but it'd been strong for them. That may have been a bad sign. Cause it may have been like, yeah, it works for us. And that's all we care about. And theaters will go away. But I, 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 I can see the theaters points and why they're like hesitant. Um, I watched it at home and there are benefits to that, but I really enjoy the movies that I really want to see. I want to see, I'm excited about like Dune, for instance, you know, I want to see that on the big screen. So I want theaters to stick around, which means they need to make money. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can understand why the theaters are like cranky with Disney. (laughs) Um, But, you know, Disney had this kind of blow up in their face as well when they did it with Mulan. Yeah. (laughs) People were like, so I I don't know. I mean, at the end, it is art, but it's also commerce and it's also business. So I don't know. I my take on it is, is, I mean, keep it in mind. 
the National Association of Theater Owners obviously right. has some interest in wanting to protect sure. theater theatrical revenue. Sure. I, I do think this is a, a harbinger of where things are going to shift to. Okay, so you've got mm-hmm. a big opening weekend in the theaters, pretty big opening weekend for, for a big movie. And you've got a big opening weekend on Disney Plus, people watching it online. Mm-hmm. Then they all drop off the second weekend. Okay. I kind of feel like that's probably the model we're going to see happening a lot more often going forward. Because again, uh, theater revenues are always going to be highest that first weekend. And now you've given people two different ways to watch films. So they're going to choose one or the other. And then most people are still going to watch it in that first weekend. Sure. One of those two ways. Right. We may be getting to a point where we're going to see past pandemic here that really your first weekend is kind of, that's kind of your deal. And then after that first weekend, you're just going to see much, much greater diminishing returns. Um, think about like when Netflix puts out a, a TV show or something goes out online. You have about a week or so of people talking about it. Mm-hmm. There's like a lot of big activity around it. And people go to flock to watch it. Then you don't really hear about it much after that. Sure. Everybody's moved on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of where I think we are maybe with movies a little bit too. The whole idea of a, a film playing really strong for six or eight weeks in a theater might be – might be kind of passe now, now with the advent of online viewing and all that too. Well, um, and another service, um, HBO Max, you know, it's been announced, you know, they, they had kind of the same type deal, except it's free for their subscribers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, they got to do Wonder Woman 1984. They also have had um, Judas and the Black Messiah. Then they've had um, Space Jam is also on there currently. Yep. Um, the new one, A New Legacy, is that what it's called? Sure. <laughs> the sequel, whatever it is, the sequel with LeBron James. Yes. Um, so, but I know that that supposedly, and there's, there's all this back and forth about whether Dune's going to be on there or not. Originally it was. And then now I think they've, it's not going to be on there anymore, which I don't know how they can, I don't know how Dune can make it not be, I guess I, I don't, it seems like once it was negotiated, that would be it. They have no say so yeah. in the Heights also went on to, HBO Heights Max. to HBO Max. And I remember people talking about disappointment in box office with that too, because it was being split. So, but if I remember correctly, when we've talked about this in the past, that relationship with Warner Brothers and HBO Max is only going to be 2021. Yes. So, and actually, it's probably not even the whole year. Because, like year. you said, you know, Dune and a couple others kind of got pulled out of that deal once theaters started opening up back up in earnest. So, I don't know how they pulled that off, but right. they're probably still lawyered up right now talking about it. But <laughs> probably. Um, I just, it's still a very interesting time. Sure. Um, we knew, we knew getting back into the theater experience was going to be interesting given the year and a half of online movie viewing people have had. I think my, my feeling is studios are just acclimating to a joint approach to distributing movies because you can't go one or the other. I don't think anymore. Uh, if you go theater only, you're going to come out with lower revenue because people just are not going to the theater as much as they had in the past. Right. If you go online only, um, you're also leaving a lot of money on the table. And I think uh, you sac- you harm your relationship with the theaters too. So you got to kind of do both to really get the Mac exposure. But uh, it's like they were saying in the article, you know, it's not like they, their argument that the theater owners is that the people watching it on Disney plus, those aren't new people that would not have been watching the movie mm-hmm. that are only watching it because it's on Disney plus. They said, no, most of those people you're robbing from the theater experience. People that would have gone to the theater are now opting to watch it online. So it's not like you've added any new watchers. You've just 
shifted from one source to another. And Disney is probably like, well, we don't care because we well, still we, we made the money. money. <laughs> well, yeah. so, and your point is. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so, yeah. um, anyway, just interesting notes. I, it was so funny how this changed though from reading the news last weekend after the official first weekend of Black Widow. I was like, ooh, this is really good. They did great. And then you hear the news the second weekend. It's like, oh, well. Maybe it's not so great. Maybe they're not hanging well, in there. I guess quite that as well. you'll have to wait and see what the second week of Space Jam, True. LeBron James version, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like what the, what happens to that because it'll be cannibalized by HBO Max too. Sure, so absolutely. I mean, it's the Plus. same same but situation. But it's, it's free on HBO Max if you're paying the whatever fourteen fifteen dollars a month for right. HBO. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. Uh, all right, last little thing I'm going to bring up. Uh, you and I, Chris, have talked about this in the hallways here at the office, but. Uh, I, I just think it's kind of interesting. There is a documentary that has come out about, uh, about Anthony Bourdain, uh, you know, travel log uh, guy who just, uh, you know, was on CNN a lot. Uh, did a lot of the, the traveling kind of travel documentaries and exploring different cultures. And he's and a food. chef too. He's yeah. a chef. Yeah. yeah. Exploring food and culture in different places. And very, very famous, obviously you know, did pass away just in the last couple of years here. Um, and a documentary was made about his life. It's called Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. Um, filmmaker Morgan Neville, who is the one who did, hearkening back to Mr. Rogers, the Won't You Be My Neighbor mm-hmm. that we referenced in the uh, Werewolves Within review. And he made the Oscar winning 20 Feet from Stardom. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So good, good documentary filmmaker. Yeah, well known. But there's been some controversy come up because uh, there was a voiceover featured in the documentary. That is Anthony Bourdain's voice reading an email, but the voice is computer generated, AI generated, meaning Anthony Bourdain never recorded himself saying reading these passages, but they used a computer to simulate, replicate his voice reading these passages. Chris, your, your, your nose is crinkling up. You yeah. kind of got this look on your face. I'm assuming that this does not sit too well with you and you can understand maybe some of the backlash the film is getting for doing this. Yeah. I mean, I understand documentaries. They are from the director's perspective. You know, they have all this footage, all this stuff that they're making into a film and they control what we see and what we don't see and how we see it. And their, their goal is to make something entertaining as with a documentary, you know, assumably or assume that they're also trying to educate. Um, so it's disappointing that something would be done that's kind of misleading. Um, mm-hmm. that, yeah. And I just – and it surprises me more that it's an established filmmaker that has – you know, award-winning filmmaker – that has done it as opposed to maybe this was somebody's, you know, project and maybe it's only like their first or second film and they just didn't really think about it or didn't play. But I just like, yeah, it, to me, it's, it's problematic. Now I don't know because I've seen some talk about how much yeah. they used that technology to do the narration, how much, cause they do have a lot of footage of Anthony Bourdain just talking. So some of the stuff is him, but you know, supposedly not a lot. Okay. No, it's just a few passages, but here's, here's an interesting quote from GQ interview with Morgan Neville talking okay. about this. He said, in the beginning, I went and gathered everything he ever said about his life. I went through every book and podcast and voiceover session and put together a binder of like 500 pages of him talking about his life. There was a moment when I was even like, gee, I could make the whole film in his voice, though I stopped myself instantly. 
But then I came across a few things he wrote, but that he never said. And so I had this idea to create an AI model of his voice, which we did. Now, continuing on, he said they fed more than 10 hours of his Tony's voice, Anthony's voice, into the AI model. Uh, they worked with several companies and selling on the best one to work with. Um, and they said that they checked with his widow and his literary executor just to make sure people were cool with it. And they were like, we believe Tony would have been cool with that. So they, he said, I wasn't putting words in his mouth. I was just trying to make them come alive. You were trying to make them more dramatic, which, yeah, but like, yeah, that's still like documentary ethics, which they teach entire courses on how to make documentaries. And then they also teach you know, courses mm. on documentary ethics. It's creating emotion or creating something yeah. that I don't, I don't feel it's like artificial. it's fair. It's, it's already, yeah, it's artificial. It's, artificial. it's, it's good. It makes me feel a little bit better that his widow is okay with it. And yeah. suppose it says, you know, like, I think he would have been okay with it, but just, I don't know. I, it still gives well, me. Well, we haven't seen the film. We haven't. And you know, I, I it's one of those things where if, if I were to see it and see some of those passages in question, would it have been just as effective hearing somebody else just reading his words like you typically see in a documentary when somebody right. like has written something in paper. Have his widow read it. Right. And you just hear somebody reading their passage, but right. you know it's like this is what they wrote. Right. Could it have been just as powerful? And if it could have been just as powerful to hear it from somebody else's voice, then I absolutely would have rather they'd gone that route. Right. You know? But um, I don't know. We'll actually you know, have to definitely watch the film and see how it did. But it is kind of bringing in this whole question. I mean – it's a little bit of a reach, but you know, it's a similar idea with motion capture. And, you know, we talked about motion capture years ago about should it, you know, when, when motion captures performances are so good, hmm. who do you credit for that? I mean, it's a little bit of this too. It's like there are audio engineers recreating a voice and making it from already existing content. And there's something artistic about doing that. And I don't know. So it does pose some very interesting questions. I'd wanted to see the film anyway because i knew of him but i've never really like watched any of his shows and so i was curious to learn more about him when i see the film i'll just have to i guess kind of evaluate yeah how much of that do i feel like was used and if it's yeah. you know one percent <laughs> yeah then i'll be like well still don't think he should have done it but yeah it didn't deep six the film right just uh I'll interesting again it's, it's something we already talked about with video um, recreating celebrities right? or using digital versions of their faces to put them in situations that they're not or passed away celebrities now showing back up in films looking like fully created uh, roles. That all comes from a computer. Same idea. But I think, the, I think where this kind of crossed a little bit of a line for people is it's a documentary. Yeah. You know, if it was we wanted to have Anthony Bourdain featured in a film that we were making – where we have actors and we need him to show up as a in a quick scene mm-hmm. for some reason, uh, using AI to do that, maybe we're feeling a little better about that. But if being a documentary, which is supposed to be based on truth, and you're kind of faking the truth, that's uh, maybe where people are having problems with it. Yeah. Anyway, I just think it's an interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And are you still wanting to see the film? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I am. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I definitely want to see it. Okay. All right. Well, that's some news items we've got. So we talked Cannes Film Festival. We talked Venice Film Festival. We talked box office discrepancies and controversies. And then we talked a little documentary controversy here with the Anthony Bourdain documentary as well. Um, Chris, we're 
down to the last part of our show where you and I both give recommendations. Yes. We, uh, Chris and I will comb through our letterboxed uh, film library to see anything that we have seen or either recently or recall seeing in the past that we think is worthy of a recommendation. Now, the only caveat is these films have to be available, something you could see online. So that way they're available to everybody. You don't have to travel to a big city uh, theater to necessarily see them right now. Um, and I think that's the only caveat uh, is that we, they have to be available online. They could be a new film, could be an older film, something we saw recently or something we remember seeing. Um, Chris, what do you have to share with us as a recommendation this week? So I'm going to share. It will kind of tie back a little bit. It's a it's another music documentary. Okay. Um, I actually watched it over uh, July 4th weekend. I kind of saved it for then. But it's uh, Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. And it's uh, I say it's by Questlove because that's how I know him. But uh, it's really directed by Amir Khalid Thompson because that's his like actual real name. But um, what it's about is during the same summer as Woodstock, over 3,000 people attracted or attended the Harlem Cultural Festival, and it celebrated African-American music and culture and promoting black pride and unity. And the footage from the festival basically sat in a basement, and it was unseen for over 50 years. And then Questlove somehow got a hold of it, or, you know, talked to people, got a hold of it, and edited this together. So it's concert footage, but it's also footage of people talking about the event, vaguely remembering it happened, because basically a lot of people forgot that it ever happened. Hmm. Um, so you see people like um, Nina Simone, The yeah. Fifth Dimension, Stevie Wonder, hmm. Sly and the Family Stone. And you see them obviously when they were really young, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. which is really cool. Um, so I, I do recommend it. I will say this is one of the odd recommendations that I'll make sometimes. Usually if I recommend something, I've given it like five stars or something like that. Mm -hmm. With this, um, I like it, but I was a little disappointed because you see footage, but I wanted to see like Stevie Wonder performing like three or four songs, mm -hmm. or I wanted to see Nina Simone doing like three or four songs, you know, and you get to see a lot, but you just, you get to see a lot of artists, but you just get to see a little bit of them. Mm. So it was kind of frustrating because I wanted to see more of them. Basically, I felt like I'd have to go back and watch it again that I only got to see like maybe one song from each artist. And I'm like, come on. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know what footage was available, how much footage they shot. Maybe they only shot basically one song for each artist or whatever. But it's still fabulous that this stuff has finally come to light and that um, you can you can see it. So I'm glad that he, glad that he did it. And I, I do recommend it. Um, but mm -hmm. that's uh, – and it's um, – it is actually in theaters in mm -hmm. some places across the country. Um, but they've also released it exclusively on Hulu. So you can find it there. Okay. Yeah. Summer of Soul. I am uh, very interested in seeing this. So I will take your recommendation under advisement and plan <laughs> to seek it out and look for it. Um, yeah. Music documentaries. Generally speaking, uh, I'm a big fan of most all of them, but you have to really run it off the rails for me not to enjoy a, a music <laughs> documentary. So this one sounds great. Though. Well, it is the type of thing that like he was obviously he's interested in doing it's not just a con he wasn't interested or maybe he couldn't because they didn't have enough footage, but in making a concert film. Yeah. And that's kind of what I thought this was going to be. And mm -hmm. it was more of a documentary, which was still cool as opposed to a comfort concert film, which I guess that's kind of maybe when they release this, eventually there'll be like two discs and mm -hmm. one disc will be like, or maybe the several discs will be like concert yeah. and the other one's still this documentary. Still, I, I do recommend it. All right. Well, I'm going to go a little unique here on my recommendation. Okay. I, Chris, I'm always fascinated with 
huge box office failures, Hmm. big flops, you know, movies that kind of have this reputation of just crashing and burning so so bad. That's why you have all the cats posters all over your home theater and everything. That's why you now know I do. I'm I'm fascinated (laughs) by it. Anytime a movie just gets a reputation as just when people mention the film, it's like, Ooh, that, that one really like, that's the definition of a flop. That Hmm. is like that defined box office failure. I'm always fascinated because I'm always curious. Why is that? You know, what, what made it fail? Is it truly a bad movie or is it just bad timing or was there some other factors at play? Sure. So that was what caused me to seek out and see something I had not seen ever before. And it came out 30 years ago, 1990s, the bonfire of the vanities. Oh yes. So this was my, my opportunity to go back and say, all right, let me just see what the deal with this is. Because again, it was something that, um, when it came out, it tanked really bad in the box office, just made very, very little money, but yet had three really big and stars that were still on the upswing popularity-wise, Tom Hanks, Bruce Willis, and Melanie Griffith. All three of them, not at their peak yet. They okay. were still rising stars shooting up like a <laughs> like a comet. Sure. And this was like the, the big buzz around this was, oh, we're bringing these three up and big actors together. We're adapting this famous book by Tom Wolfe. Um, you know, it's going to be great. And it's kind of an indictment of the rich. It's uh, kind of a, a fighting against the whole Wall Street um, uh, personalities. And it, anyway, it sounded like it was just made for winning, and it did not. And it, it <laughs> failed it pretty not. poorly, box office-wise, and also critically. Gotcha. A lot of people hated this movie. So it was a chance for me to go back and catch up with it. And I'm here to say... Eh, it's not that bad. It's actually, I, I kind of enjoyed it. I actually kind of had a good time with this film. Uh, directed by Brian De Palma, which is in itself also very interesting. Brian mm-hmm. De Palma mostly doing a lot of genre films, but right. for him to be adapting kind of a famous book that was more about economic uh, separation between classes and uh, racial, you know, uh, attention and issues. And, uh, he made it, I thought uh, he shot a pretty good film. I had a good time with it. Um, now, the biggest thing, uh, the issue, I think, well, let me just give you the quick synopsis of the story. So the story does follow uh, Tom Hanks's character, who he plays a uh, person named Sherman McCoy, who's a Wall Street banker investment. And he starts to see his life unravel when his mistress, Maria Ruskin, who's played by Melanie Griffith, hits a young black gentleman with her car when they were lost one night and hits them with the car and drives off drives and, on, hit, you know, and hit and run. Right. So then there's a journalist, Peter Fallow, who's played by Bruce Willis, who starts to kind of find out about this story, find out what was going on starts investigating it, putting out a lot of information about it. And it really makes Sherman's you know life a hell for a while. Right. And it all culminates because uh, it, it, the whole case is being kind of seized upon by a lot of opportunist uh, mayoral candidates. There's a reverend in the film who kind of starts to capitalize on this whole uh, controversy. So again, a lot of things that you know, haven't changed a lot in the last 30 years from a society standpoint. Uh, so it was kind of maybe cutting edge at the time, maybe a little early to be kind of uh, talking about these kind of sensitive subject matter. But I think the biggest issue that people have with the film is the casting, from what I can gather. Hmm. There are a lot of fans of the original uh, novel by Thomas Wolfe, and they just felt like Tom Hanks' character, you should not like Sherman McCoy. 
but yet the film chose to cast one of the most likable human <laughs> beings in the face of the planet, Tom Hanks. Get old Tom Hanks. In that role. Sure. Um, There's a lot of comments that Peter Fallow, the journalist, um, very, very miscast for Bruce Willis, it sounds like. Should have been a much older person. It was, I think Bruce Willis played him a lot more smarmy, a lot more kind of with the comic timing at at times that didn't really fit the character. Hmm. Uh, So it just seems to be a casting issue, just kind of a misfire from that end. And I think think maybe a lot of people weren't really ready to kind of talk about some of the social issues that were gathered in the film, too. I don't know. Um, Chris, have you seen this film? I have. It has been a long time ago, but I remember when I saw it, I thought it was okay. Yeah. You know, I, I liked it. I wouldn't like ranting and raving about it, but I definitely didn't have the like venom and hate for it that a lot of people did. But I, I thought it was okay. And I think at the time I had not, I think since I have read the book by Tom Wolf, I think, but at the time I hadn't. So I didn't have any sense of like casting or mm-hmm. anything. So I didn't really, that didn't really bother me, which if I had, I guess that could have really affected mine, but I, I liked it. Yeah. I, um, I will say, uh, it has an opening single take tracking shot that De Palma does throughout the entire opening credits. Just pretty amazing. I mean, it's a really, really great long take following Bruce Willis's character Mm. as he's going to make a public appearance at some big hotel event. And you see him from the parking garage, going through the back tunnels of the building, up the elevator, out to the actual floor. Mm. It's pretty crazy. And it was a really (laughs) good shot. And uh, I think within that first 10 minutes, I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm kind of on board for this. Let's, let's see what it's got. And it more or less held up for me the whole film. So I did have okay. a good time with this. Uh, I wonder if it's one that people will start to go back and revisit more and say, you know, maybe this was actually not that bad. And you maybe. say it's 30th anniversary. Yeah, it was 1990. Well, 31. 31. So it was uh, 30 years ago it came out, hmm. which is uh, kind of crazy to think about. Yeah. But um, that's the bonfire of the vanities. I'm saying, you know what? I'm, I'm not, like you, I'm not saying it's like a five-star film. I'm like singing it from the rooftops, but <laughs> I do think it was probably maybe misaligned when it came out. I think it got, it just hit a bad streak of sure. timing when it came out and some bad press and some bad early reviews that just kind of snowballed. I feel like okay. I, I think it's, uh, it's okay. It's not worth, uh, <laughs> not worth all the bad press you got about it. So fair enough. All right, so that is Chris's recommendation with Summer of Soul, documentary that you can find on Hulu. Yes. And then mine is The Bonfire of the Vanities. You can rent for about 3 or $4, just about anywhere that has online video available. So, Chris, that is the end of our show. We have covered quite a bit today. Werewolves Within, The Sparks Brothers, both positive recommendations from us. Uh, Cannes Film Festival, Venice Film Festival, uh, we talked about Black Widow's box office with Disney Plus uh, controversy. And then we talked about the Anthony Bourdain controversy in using an AI computer-generated voice in the latest documentary about him. So, Chris, if anybody has any thoughts on any of those topics or anything they'd like to share with us, how can they go about getting a hold of us? You can send us an email to info at footcandle.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at footcandlefilm. Al and I have accounts on Letterboxd where we try to track what we're seeing and sometimes write short little reviews. We mentioned before, um, don't miss our 2021 Foot Candle Film Festival, September 22nd through the 26th. It'll be right here in Hickory, North Carolina. We're going to have in-person screenings. If you can't make the in-person part and you live in North Carolina, you'll still be able to see the films online. That's going to be accessible as well. 
Um, last but not least, uh, if you like our podcast, consider giving us a star rating, write a review, share with friends and iTunes to help us reach new listeners. We'd appreciate it. That's awesome. Also, we're available at iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. All right. Lots of ways to connect with us. And just as uh, we mentioned at the top of the show, but we do have the Foot Candle Film Festival coming up September 22nd through the 26th right here in Hickory, North Carolina, in the foothills of Western North Carolina. We will have uh, 30-some films coming in over the course of the five-day event, plus a couple special screenings and special events. Uh, All that information you'll be able to see on Foot Candle Film Festival by the end of July. All that information will be up there. Tickets will be available. So we do recommend uh, coming and joining us in Western North Carolina if you are available and want to take a little road trip. But also, if you live in the state of North Carolina, you can join us virtually when the films are available online each following day of their in-person premiere. So, uh, right up. Yeah. I'd mentioned, yeah. When I was getting my little thing, I mentioned that they would be online, but as Alan, that's how it's going to be structured. The films will have an in-person premiere and then afterwards they'll be available online for those who couldn't make the premiere. So those who live in North Carolina, those who live in North Carolina, clarify that the online screenings, the virtual element of the festival is only available to North Carolina residents. Apologize to all of our listeners outside the state, but we have to, Make sure we're kind of keeping things under control with the film distribution and and availability of these films that we show online. Our huge Australian contingent, we apologize. I still say they should make the trek on over here. I think it (laughs) would be a fun trip to come on to (laughs) Western North Carolina for a a four- or five-day festival. But we are looking forward to a great time. We hope you will come join us or join us virtually. And uh, stay tuned to FootCandleFilmFestival.com website for information. All right, Chris, we're going to go and wrap it up. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. This has been Foot Candle Films here on the TV. Take care. We'll talk to you next time. See you in the ticket line. Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.